I cannot drop litter. I just cannot. If you forced me to drop a Twix wrapper on the street or kick a coat cannel on the road, I would <laughs> cringe and I would writhe and I would sweat. I wouldn't be able to sleep. I'd have to run back to the scene of the crime later and pick it up. I'd have to put out tweets begging forgiveness of anyone who'd seen me do it. I cannot drop litter. I had this drummed into me at primary school in the 1980s, just as I was told not to smoke. We were all made to join the Smoke Busters Club, and when our music teacher Miss Daly wrote a song for the school, it was all about litter. They taught us when we were young and pliable, and it worked. Maybe I was just very meek and mild, but I have never dropped litter and never as much as held a cigarette to my lips. So why was my primary school so crazily set on making us aware of litter? It was probably connected to the campaign in Britain, the public information campaign uh, called Keep Britain Tidy, which I remember being very prominent in the 1980s. It's probably no little wonder that this campaign arose because when I look back to old photos of Glasgow, my hometown, in the 1980s, the place looked grubby. There was waste ground everywhere, so it seemed, clogged with weeds. There was broken glass in the woods. If you went to play in the woods to build a den, there was always broken glass there. And all the old Victorian tenements were black. They were literally black with soot from the Industrial Revolution, which I just piled on in layers and layers and layers all through the Victorian era, all through the era of the terrible smogs of the 50s. Everything was black and dirty. But then Glasgow began to prettify itself and us brats at school were told to stop dropping litter. And much of the waste ground is now student flats although arguably it was nicer as waste ground. And all those black tenements have been sandblasted to reveal the lovely warm red and blonde sandstone beneath. So Glasgow got especially serious about sorting itself out, cleaning itself up in the 80s, with its Glasgow's Miles Better campaign, and then we had the Garden Festival, and then we rewarded the city of culture and it all did make a difference to a city which had been well once so prominent once the so-called second city of the British Empire but had then been badly knocked about by deindustrialization. so put your chip wrappers in the bin slap a lick of paint here and there sandblast all the dirty soot off the buildings and it made a tremendous difference to the city's image and morale But today, we're asking what paints and litter might do, not for a city's morale, but for your survival chances in a nuclear war. As there was an American civil defence film from the early 50s called The House in the Middle, which chided and nagged at householders to paint their fence and scoop up all those magazines and clear all the weeds away. Because a tidy house, reeking of fresh paint and smugness might just save you when the heat flash comes.
Can you imagine a safer, cosier, more nurturing place than the post-war American home? Okay, writers like Sylvia Plath and Betty Friedan suggested it was a stifling place sometimes, but surely there was comfort and reassurance to be found there for plenty of others. There must have been something nice in the sunny security it seemed to represent. Where Dad is off at work making big bucks in the big city, and Mum is at home making fragrant pies and cakes, with a spotless apron tucked round her petite 1950s waist. Yes, that's the sure sweet image of the 1950s American home, and I have a deeply split opinion about it. I can easily, so easily, imagine myself as one of those bored, frustrated housewives popping Valium and sucking on a gin bottle. Another 50s stereotype, of course. And yet, at a period in my life where I was ill and exhausted, then, oh yes, I could see the lovely, repetitive, reassuring comfort of having nothing to do all day but bake cakes and wait for my big fat breadwinner to come home. (laughs) But I digress, which is something I promised on Twitter earlier this evening that I'd never do. My point is, for lots of us... The image of the 50s American home is a positive, welcoming and cheering one. And certainly that image was reinforced through a lot of cinema, TV and pop music. And yet, at the same time as homely, rosy-cheeked America was being promoted and celebrated, there were hints that the home was a place of potential danger. Set aside the fact that some of these homes had fallout shelters beneath the garden or in the cellar. Set aside the fact that there might have been guns kept in them. Let's start with something even more basic than that, which shows that the home, that lovely 1950s, secure, predictable, comforting home, could be a place of danger. In September 1955... An article appeared in the New York Times headlined Home Listed as Potential Danger Site. It said, Home is potentially the most dangerous place a person can be in 1955. Five million Americans may be injured there this year. And by 1975, home accidents may affect seven million of them. These figures came from a conference being held on how to make life (laughs) safer. The conference suggested that a lot of accidents in the home might have come from the simple fact that the housewife or the kids at home won't have the same approach to workplace discipline, for example, that a factory worker or office worker might have. Or, I'll quote here from the newspaper, other factors were suggested by Alfred Lowell Mosley, a consulting psychologist. The housewife statistically more susceptible to injury than her husband, may have accidents because she is fatigued by long hours and overwork, because she's bored, or because she believes that an injury will create sympathy and revive her husband's waning interest. The article goes on, unsatisfactory design is another danger. The rotary lawnmower, which may remove a toe, is the number one hazard for fathers today. The electric mixer, which endangers fingers, holds that position in mother's life. So there is danger everywhere, you better believe it. Danger from the sky in the shape of a mushroom cloud, and danger in the home, 
from all the blades and flames and grills and knives. Oh, so what's a person supposed to do to keep safe? An American civil defence film from 1953 had a few answers. Five, four, three, two, one. told viewers to straighten up and fly right, get your garden tidied, dispose of all that rubbish, why are all those weeds there, and all that peeling paint on your garden fence, and look inside this grubby house, stacks of old newspapers and magazines, sort it out. But in every town, you'll find houses like this, run down, neglected. Trash and litter disfigure the house and yard. An eyesore, yes, and as you'll see, much more. A house that's neglected is the house that may be doomed in the atomic age. Yes, that's right. They were linking the cleanliness and freshness of your home and garden to your chances of surviving nuclear war. The film urged you to get fresh paint and spruce the place up and to join with your community in making your small town shiny again. Draw your own conclusion from the fact that the film was released in colour by the National Clean-Up, Paint-Up, Fix-Up Bureau, which was a body created by the National Paint, Varnish and Lacquer Association. I suppose those lads would be very keen on you rushing out to buy paint and go on a mad house-painting craze. <coughs> but what justification was given in the film for this? Would a tidy house and a lick of paint give you any kind of protection under nuclear attack? The film talks of shabby old unpainted fences with dead grass and litter piled up in the garden. The narrator says, with obvious disgust, we've all seen such gardens in slum areas. So at the Nevada testing ground, they arrange some shoddy old fences pile them with rubbish, and beside those fences they have nice ones with no rubbish. And then set off a nuke to see what happens. The conclusion is that the fences with no litter clustered around them were slower to ignite. So having your garden trim and tidy doesn't protect you, it simply means that you will be slower to burn. But I have to say, if I had a chance of being ignited quickly and easily in the flash, or igniting slowly I'd probably rather have the dirty slummy old garden and what happens when we go inside the house how does a slummy household compare to a clean and tidy one when a nuclear bomb goes off outside in the house on the right all the earmarks of untidy housekeeping newspapers and magazines lying about and cluttered tables. Now the house on the left, identical to the other, but spick and span. Trash has been thrown away. Tabletops are tidy. Two homes, one a fire trap, even under ordinary conditions, the other cleaned up and fresh with better, safer housekeeping, both ready for the test bomb. The light flash and the heat wave, then the blast tears away part of each roof. 
Yep, you guessed it. Slummy House is incinerated, whereas Smug House copes much better. And now for the film's final test, and the one from where it draws its name. This time, three little houses are assembled, and the house on the right is the slummy one. The house on the left is typical of American houses, we're told. The wood is dry, and it's in a bit of a rundown condition, and it has not been painted regularly, says the narrator, reminding us, of course, who's behind this film. But what of the house in the middle? The house in the middle, in good condition, with a clean, unlittered yard. The exterior has been painted with ordinary, good quality house paint. Light painted surfaces reflect heat, and the paint also protects the wood from weathering and moisture damage. Let's watch the test now and see what happens under atomic heat. lads you want us to buy paint we get it yes you can guess it the nicely painted house in the middle whose wood had been treated and cared for and who is pleasantly gleaming survived the atomic blast and the heat flash the tatty rundown dried out houses on either side of him gone the house in the middle cleaned up Painted up and fixed up, exposed to the same searing atomic heat wave, did not catch fire. Close examination revealed only a slight charring of the painted outer surface. So who were the people behind this film? The National Paint, Varnish and Lacquer Association? Let me just remind you, they didn't make the film. It was originally a black and white film by the Civil Defence Authority, But then the paint guys saw their chance and re-released it a year later in colour. But who were these guys? Well, I entered the archive of the New York Times, determined to be a sleuth and find out the unvarnished truth. Ah, here we are, a reference to them in the paper from December 1964. What does it say? When painting a ceiling... The National Paint, Varnish and Lacquer Association suggests working across the width rather than the length of the room. This enables one to start a second lap before the first has dried completely. Ah, huh. quite decent advice, quite sensible. Ah, but wait, what about this? From August 1964. Window screens may benefit from a coat of paint when rust or corrosion becomes apparent. Okay, again, quite sensible. Thanks, thanks guys. Ah, right, got it, got it. I finally nailed these lads. Here we are, an article about them in the New York Times from October 1962 during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Here they'll show their true colours. Achieving colour harmony between rooms that open into each other can be difficult for DIY decorators. But there are a number of ways to handle this problem, according to the National Paint, Varnish and Lacquer Association. So I'm obviously joking with you. Um, These... Guys just wanted to flog their paint. That's what businesses do. And if they wanted to use our nuclear anxiety to flog that paint, oh well, it was America in the 50s. People were out to make money. I hope you've enjoyed this uh, shorter and relatively light-hearted episode. 
It has come to you a few days late, so I apologise for that, but the deadline for my book is drawing near and I'm getting flustered and panicked and I'm told this is normal. Thank you, of course, to everyone who supports me on Patreon and let me give a shout-out to the following patrons. Hallie Andrews, Chris Carini, Louis, Sally Everett-Brick, Tom Allen, Paul Jonathan Viner, Hack Green, Secret Nuclear Bunker, Gary Watson, Arika and Lucy Stegerwald. <laughs> 